The Old Testament reading this morning is from Isaiah 7, verses 10 to 16. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary morals, mortals that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey by the time he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land before whose two kings you dread will be deserted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The gospel reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son, and he named him Jesus. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. I was recently talking to a friend about waiting, waiting for decisions, waiting for things to happen. There's just been lots of waiting happening in life recently. And he looked at me and he said, when you get really tired of waiting, the real waiting begins. I was like, darn it. Right, but I thought that's actually quite applicable right now because we're in our fourth week of Advent. So we've been waiting as a congregation and we've been anticipating and we've been talking about after darkness light, right? And so we're kind of at the end of this waiting and anticipating. And for some of us in the congregation, those two words, waiting and anticipating, might have a different weight. Maybe some of us are anticipating. And then others of us are just waiting. You know, and I've been one who, during times of waiting in our church calendar, sometimes get a little bit like the passive kind of waiting. Like, can we just hurry up? Like, you're just enduring, just waiting for that whatever time, the 40 days to be over. And again, another friend 
in this Advent season was really encouraging, not just me, but a few people saying, we should really just lean into the verb of Advent, not as a thing, but the actually adventing, the coming to, the vigilance of what this time is really all about. And so each week, as we as a congregation have been lighting candles, like bringing a little bit more light into the darkness, so starting with peace and then hope and joy and now love, I've been thinking about how can I advent these, it's like exercising a skill, how do I actively hope? How do I actively express joy? How do I actively move into this time, even though it is a time of darkness, it's the movement and the vigilance of this time. Well, there's always something about in a season of waiting or in a season of adventing, there's a question that sits there kind of out in the open and it's on the table for you to think about. Who actually is in charge while you're waiting? Right? Because sometimes waiting can be really challenging. And if things are broken and hard, the waiting part is even harder. And so the question is, who is in charge during this time of waiting? Both of our passages deal with this question um, to an extent. It's at the root of the question. So... Uh, if we were to start with the Isaiah passage, um, being the Old Testament passage, I love starting there. If we were to answer the question, who is in charge during this Isaiah portion, the natural reaction would be the king. The king is in charge. Okay, so who actually is sitting on the throne, which is the more pertinent question, of which Isaiah would say, not the human king, but God as king. This idea that God is enthroned and God is the one actually in charge is one of the oldest theological assertions for the Israelites. And we could trace, I mean, going from Genesis 1 and 2, the creator God is the God who reigns over the earth. Deuteronomy asserts the same thing. And even when we get to Samuel, the books of Samuel, God tells his people or he tells Samuel in the people wanting a human king to sit on the throne, Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me, the true king who sits on the throne, right? It's this long, long assertion. And it brings up a lot of issues because as we look through Kings and Chronicles, so the stories of the kings of the Israelite kingdoms, we see that being the king, the human king on the throne is challenging. The role of the human king is to actually be mindful of and execute the will of God for his people, which means um, working towards the health of the earth, working towards the health of the people in your care, working towards the restoration of people who are pushed to the perimeter of the kingdom, this restoration of all people. But we see that for the human kings, there's always a tension because they're in charge and they tend to want to 
do the human kingly things, which is build the wealth of the kingdom, extend your reach and influence into surrounding nations, extract just a little bit more taxes from people. It tends to be a little bit more of a building up of the leaders, right? So there's a tension between what God says, which is be the human representative of me on earth, and then the, um, the urging, the temptation to be just a typical human leader, extracting everything possible from those who are under your care. This tension is at the heart of what is going on in our passage here in Isaiah. It doesn't come out so clearly in these six verses. And so therefore, I want to tell you the dramatic story the context of these six verses. So there are some characters you need to know, the necessary characters. First, we have Isaiah, the prophet. Different than Isaiah, the book, which is really quite a complex compilation of lots of different texts. But Isaiah, the person, is very interesting as an Israelite prophet. There are other prophets roughly at the same time, like roughly contemporaries of Isaiah. We have um, Amos, we have Hosea. Micah is definitely a contemporary, although for a very short time. These three, Amos, Hosea, Micah, they live in small villages on the outskirts um, in different places around the country. Isaiah is different. Isaiah is a city boy. He's an urban guy born raised in Jerusalem with the temple and the throne of the king or the kingdom of Judah visibly in front of him at all times and you see it and you hear it in his prophecies he's very Jerusalem focused he's very Mount Zion and he's very much a prophet who talks about who is actually on the throne Okay, so we have Isaiah. We also have Uzziah. Um, Uzziah doesn't show up in this passage. Uzziah dies in chapter 6, and we're in chapter 7. But with the death of Uzziah, we have the death, the closing of this small window of time when the southern kingdom of Judah was actually profitable. They actually had the kind of influence that was spreading out to the surrounding nations. They actually had control of trade routes, and they actually had a decent amount of money pouring into the country. But with the death of Uzziah, that window of prosperity closes, and now there is danger on the horizon. Our third character is Ahaz. Ahaz is actually the king on the throne in our passage. So he is the king of Judah, and Isaiah is going to challenge him. And then we have two problematic kings. So we have, um, it's uh, Pekah and Rezin. These are the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel and of Syria. And these two kings are coming to attack Judah. So these are the necessary characters that you should know about. The question that is sitting on the table is, do you remember who actually sits on the throne? And Ahaz, the person who is sitting on the throne, who is filled with fear 
Because of this problematic time that he sits in, the prophet Isaiah says, but do you have the kind of trust that can displace that fear? Because you are not the one in charge. God is the one in charge. But Ahaz feels that tension of being the right kind of human king. And so now we get a little bit closer to our passage. At the beginning of chapter 7, God sends Isaiah to Ahaz. And he says, go tell Ahaz he has nothing to worry about. Because those two smoldering stumps of firebrands who are coming to attack you are going to go away. I love that two smoldering stumps of firebrands. It's a good biblical uh, not compliment, insult, thank you very much. It's a good biblical insult. And then Isaiah is going to end and he says, if you are not firm in faith, you are not firm at all. That's quite an interesting challenge. So who, Ahaz, sits on the throne? This is all of the buildup to our passage. Because now God is going to tell Ahaz, Ahaz, if, if those words of the prophet are not enough to give you the confidence you need, I'll give you a sign. I'll give you a sign of my intentionality, of my actual presence with you, to be with you and the one who is actually in control. And initially Ahaz is like, no, no, don't bother. And Isaiah comes back and with another good insult. is like, stop being so wearying. Like you're just creating perpetual exhaustion for God. In verse 14, he says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman and that young woman word right there sometimes is translated virgin. It's Alma in Hebrew and the Hebrew word has a lot of flexibility to it. This is a really nice translation because it really does mean a young woman. It could be a young woman of marriageable age. It could be a young woman who is already married, so therefore maybe the wife of the prophet or um, someone in the house of David, someone who is in the palace itself. We don't really know. Um, it could also mean virgin, but that's a less likely interpretation here. This young woman, and I am not one to typically draw attention away from a female character in the biblical text, but she is not the one we're supposed to be looking at. We're supposed to look at the child that this young woman has. Because this child who is going to be born is going to be called Emmanuel which very literally, when you look at the Hebrew composition of this word, means with us is God. Which is amazing when you think of this little child being born with, with us is God. It's a perpetual reminder of what you're supposed to be thinking of, right? Just think, with us is God, pick up your toys. With us is God, right? Come have dinner. God with us, come. You know, you see this like perpetually the ringing in your ears of the promise that God is actually intending. In the midst of the trouble that you see, God is there because God is the one who's actually on the throne. God with us. 
in the midst of that kind of promise that God is actually with us? How should that change behavior? And that's a little bit of what Isaiah is telling Ahaz. Your behavior should change because God is with us. And those two kings that are coming who are threatening you are not actually going to be any kind of threat because God is the one on the throne. And before this little child is old enough to choose between right and wrong, old enough to just understand that there is a right and a wrong, God is already going to execute his promises. This child doesn't actually change the time frame of waiting. The time period of waiting doesn't shorten. It just changes the attitude in which you wait with the assurance God is with you. And so this passage in Isaiah, this promise from Isaiah is remarkable for his time and for his place. Notice I did not say Isaiah is predicting Jesus because there's no prediction of Jesus in this passage, although we read it during Advent, um, which maybe sounds disappointing to hear me say, because we are in Advent and we are thinking Jesus and everything is pointing towards Christmas. And I just said Isaiah has nothing to do with Jesus and Emmanuel, and that sounds a little bit odd. But it's better when we understand. Isaiah is talking to his people in his time in his place. And so what happens if in this passage we just think, what did we learn about the character of God in this passage from Isaiah? What is Isaiah saying about who God is as king, as present with his people, as the one who is in control? Because when we move from Isaiah and we get to Matthew, Matthew looks back at Isaiah and he goes, I notice a pattern. Because what Isaiah said about who God is as God with us, as the one who is in control, Matthew says to his people and his time and place, God's doing it again. God happens to still be in control. And then Matthew looks at this flexible Hebrew word, Alma, young woman, and he pulls one of the different flexible meanings out of that word. And then Matthew says, in actuality, a virgin is going to bear a child. And so Matthew goes, isn't this one of the most mysterious, beautiful things ever? The infinite, uncountable, uncontrollable, and unlimited God is going to purposefully limit and confine himself into the vulnerable essence of a human child. And then you just think, and that mystery is what Mary gets to contain in her own body, which is mysterious and beautiful in and of itself. So Matthew then is going to point to this child that is being born, and he goes, just like the first Emmanuel child that was the physical demonstration that God was with his people during Isaiah's time, now we have another baby who is coming, who is the visible representation that God is with us. And Matthew names two Im impressive names for this child. One, the child will be called Yeshua, 
Jesus, which is Savior. And Matthew goes, because ultimately he is the one who saves us from our sins. So Savior is coming to save. And more impressive than that is this child is not just a human child. This is the God child. This is literally and more dramatically God with us, confined in human flesh. And then when we continue to read Matthew's gospel, we just see what is it that God does as, or what does Jesus do as the human representative of God sitting on the throne? Well, Jesus goes about healing earth, restoring people, bringing those who are on the margins back into the restored part of society. He is the perfect human king on the throne. And we get towards the end of the story, and we see that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, through the broken body and the spilled blood of Jesus, is the ultimate restoration. Not just from two pesky political kings who are threatening to defeat a kingdom. Not from the Roman Empire. No, from the brokenness, the separation of humanity from God. That is what is restored. So when we dwell on this story and we think of the birth of Jesus and we look forward to the birth of Jesus on Sunday, right? We know it is coming, but it's a time for us to dwell on these stories. And we recognize that this story of love does not start with the birth of a child of Jesus. This story of love started long before, and it was in movement for a very long time. And it just crescendos when God himself shows up in human flesh to very physically dwell among his people. And we see this restoration that God's kingdom is really all about. And so in this time of Advent, in uh, persistent waiting, in this time when we've been slowly adding more and more light into the darkness to shine just a little bit brighter and brighter as we anticipate what is coming on Sunday, we are practicing the vigilance of Advent. We're practicing these skills that help us lean into sitting with this community sitting with other people we know in the darkness, but actively anticipating the light that is coming. Rehearsing the fact that we really are a people who live between Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. And we're still like we're practicing this Advent season because we're living in the Advent season of actively waiting for the second coming of Jesus. So we have this unshakable hope of the expectation of the arrival of the king. Will you pray with me, please? Holy God, we sit in a moment like this of Advent, the fourth week of Advent where we've been waiting and waiting and waiting, and maybe that just helps us know that the waiting is truly beginning, that we're still in the season of waiting. 
And yet we sit with these assurances because we look back on your story and we see that you are actively present, that you are one who can come and either through a sign of a child that is Emmanuel that you are with us, of actually coming you yourself and limiting yourself and confining yourself in this vulnerable form of a child to prove how much you love your people and to be present with your people. And we sit and we remember and we practice the skills of peace and hope and joy and love and we eagerly anticipate the arrival, the full arrival of your full kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.